0: How could coronavirus support for farms impact future programs and the farm bill? Is there a silver lining in the lockdown as consumers become more aware of their food? And what the heck is going on with dairy prices? Welcome to Around Farm Progress, a weekly podcast that looks at issues across the country as reported by our editors. I'm Willie Vogt, your host and editorial director for Farm Progress. And if you hear noise in the background, it's because my home studio remains an active construction zone and may be that way all summer. Farm policy can seem distant, but with the payments headed to farms the last couple of years and continued concerns about the farm economy, those discussions can hit home. We talk with Jackie Fatka, Policy Editor for Feedstuffs and Farm Futures about the Coronavirus Food Assistance Program, or CFAP, but we go beyond that to discuss how these programs could impact a range of policies. Jackie also talks about recent testimony by Trade Ambassador Robert Lighthizer who says he is optimistic about progress on China's phase one of the new trade agreement. Then we take a turn to look at an interesting market that's been especially volatile during this time of COVID-19, the dairy industry. When we last talked with Fran O'Leary, editor of Wisconsin Agriculturist in April, dairy prices were in the tank. That's no longer true, but what does that spike in prices mean and how long can it last? Fran also shared insights she picked up during a recent session with Charlie Arnott, who heads up the Center for Food Integrity and is a leading expert on consumer trends. Arnott offers perspective into how COVID-19 has changed consumer eating habits and what that might mean down on the farm. First up, let's dig into some important policy issues with Jackie Fatka. Jackie, it's always good to catch up with you and kind of catch up on the whole policy situation that's going on in agriculture. And I think top of mind for a lot of people would be CFAP, the Coronavirus Food Assistance Program that USDA implemented earlier this year. And they're, I guess, implementing it and working on sending out checks now. What are you hearing from your perspective?
1: So the uh, CFAP program, yet another acronym from uh, USDA to help farmers, sign up started May 26th. I mean, I've even talked with a couple of farmers uh, this morning even, and I, I say the check is in the mail, but actually it's more direct deposit these days for many of the farmers, but they signed up and are already getting money in the mail from the $16 billion that was part of that CARES Act that was at the end of March. We're definitely seeing uh, some some folks all over. I mean, there's already been almost $3 billion in payments that have, that have been paid as of this week and almost to 220,000 producers. So actually a lot of livestock producers are getting that money in this first wave. So the signups are still until August, so we could see, obviously, $3 billion sounds like a lot, but that's only a fraction of the $16 billion that is allocated through what Congress passed and the president signed at the end of March, as we're kind of still trying to figure out the full impact of COVID-19, and, and this is supposed to be for those producers that experienced at least a 5% loss in prices. So we could actually see some more producers groups anyway. Um, June 22nd is the deadline for groups of, of producers who feel like they weren't actually included in this first round. They can still actually petition to receive payments and USDA would be working with them. So we could see some more information on like egg producers, certain segments of folks. I know the wheat growers were wanting some changes. There's some different segments that weren't included in that first rule from USDA that we could see some some folks uh, actually get rolled into this this payment situation as well.
0: I think it's interesting that that it was built that way, that there was a door that could be opened through June 22nd for other groups, because it's hard when you're pulling a program together like Secretary Sonny Purdue did on this out of money that he had available to him to build this out. And you can't get to everybody right away. So I guess I'm glad that that, that door is open. And I've been seeing some of the press releases from groups petitioning, um, but we'll know more in the next couple of weeks because it's the government. They petitioned through Monday and then it'll take a few weeks for them to figure it out. Right.
1: Well, and if you think about it, this actually was rolled out really quick. I mean, this was passed in Congress March 27th. They released some of the details of the rule in April, and then they opened up enrollment in May. I mean, that's a really fast turnaround if you're thinking about developing a program and and getting it out. Um, You know, I'm still surprised. I kind of live in my world where I hear about all the information, but I was talking with a producer at church on Sunday and I said, have you signed up for CFAP yet? And he said, CFAP, what's that? You know, and I think everybody, producers, they kind of just put their head down and go. And sometimes, you know, this is another one of those situations, similar to what we saw with the trade payments, where We've seen ad hoc assistance come out, not something that producers are necessarily planning for, but definitely a kind of infusion of cash, especially for livestock producers who were hit really hard to kind of help manage what we've seen in a really dramatic drop in prices for them.
0: I guess the whole idea of government moving fast is something you and I are not used to.
1: Yeah, I'm not used to it. This is really an interesting dynamic because... I have covered the farm bill process. Um, I've been covering policy for nearly two decades now. So I've been through a few different farm bills. And, you know, so often when farm bill programs are debated and, uh, you know, you have kind of this north versus south, you have so many different dynamics that come in and livestock producers are not usually the ones who are asking for government help. And then all of a sudden we've seen this all happen and really with the trade payments, the last couple of years we've had this huge shift to more ad hoc assistance and and all of that has really been at the discretion of the secretary as secretary Purdue in this situation and some of his folks at USDA and so we've gone from a very different dynamic of how farm programs are designed, who they are targeted towards. I've even asked a question when I've been on some webinars with um, some folks of, you know, how does this change how we go forward? You know, I don't ever really want to say, oh, the next farm bill, but we're only two years into this farm bill and we've had trade payments and now we've had CPAP payments. So how does that change the money that that you usually we kind of try to say, well, the farm bill is how much money we're, we're sending out to farmers, but we've seen a, a huge change in what's actually been uh, headed to farmers in the last couple of years.
0: I think that's a very good question. And even though we're two years out from the beginning of the debate of the farm bill, when you send that kind of money out, you're sending different signals because as you've covered over the last really 20 years. Anyway, yeah. um, <laughs> I know never mind. For those listening to the podcast, Jackie and I have a long history together because we worked together on different things at Farm Progress for a while. That brings up an interesting dynamic that we can't really figure out here exactly, but we were only supposed to rely on the Farm Bill. That's always been the debate, right? The Farm Bill was built and structured to support agriculture and the food stamp program. Remember, a lot of the farm bill is for food programs to change up the rules with MFP, another acronym, market facilitation payments, those kinds of things. It changes the conversation, I know, in two years. It really will change the conversation. It'll be very interesting. It'll make covering it fun.
1: Right. Well, and, you know, we've always had that argument of, we need a farm bill so that we can plan and that we have an adequate safety net to protect for unknowns. Well, and and that we needed a farm bill to prevent these ad hoc disaster assistance bills that we saw a lot during, you know, late 90s, 2000s, you know, every year there was kind of this ask. And so the farm bill was trying to be more directed towards preventing that ad hoc. And from a producer standpoint, you know, it's, as I said, I've been talking to producers the last couple of days on CFAP, and obviously that mentality that they want to farm for the marketplace, they do. They don't want to farm for a government payment, and they don't want to have to try to maneuver their operation to maximize government payments. They really do generally want to farm for the marketplace but they're also not going to turn down money when it's (laughs) given to them. And so it's, you know, how do you create a system that still supports a very integral part of our national security? And, you know, it, we all need food. It's, it's important that we have food, but how is the government influencing those decisions that we have been trying to gear to be more market-based? And, you know, there's a lot of talk about set asides. You know, I, I've had a couple of farmers mention that. and farmers they don't want to be paid to not produce. I, I they really don't. And I think even if you look back at all the different farm programs we've had over the last several decades, you know we've we've tried to transition some. Um, but we are we, it will be a very interesting discussion as we head into the next farm bill and whether they will have it or maybe they want this. I think it's just super hard for a producer to to be able to plan with what we've had in the last couple of years with trade mitigation payments and now CFAT payments. And I can't imagine being able to, to look at your balance sheet and, oh, well, maybe we'll have that. And so I think they, they can't depend on it. You can't depend on the government to do it. But... On the flip side you've got to be able to manage your risk and so you know crop insurance and even plc and some of those different ways that you're managing your risk but does it reward those who didn't i mean look at cfap you're actually rewarding the farmers who had grain held on january 15th so if you marketed your grain ahead of time you don't benefit from the payments if you're a corn producer and you sold all your your corn and two years ahead of time. So it's just, it's a very interesting dynamic, very interesting discussion for sure.
0: That's for sure. And it sounds like your computer's doing a lot of stuff. That's the fun of working from home. I know that, that, but you know, the other side of this debate, and I think this will be interesting to watch too is how the consumer weighs in on the farm bill, because I'll tell you what, um, in the last three months, the consumer has got a lot more focus on their food than they've ever had before.
1: And, and hopefully we can use this as an opportunity to continue to share a good story. You know, interestingly, I think we could have, <laughs> as scary as this sounds, we could have a a, a bigger debate, maybe even this fall, about climate uh, change and the role of sustainability. And I mean, I'm hearing some discussion from folks on Capitol Hill that we could see some legislation come up this fall on uh, climate and, you know, how to mitigate that. And, and, and really, we need to make sure with agriculture that we have that platform to share the good story that we tell. As I talked with a a lobbyist for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association last week, everybody recognized that when we didn't have as many cars on the road, we saw fewer greenhouse gas emissions. We did not have any fewer cows in the fields when that also happened. You know, there's some opportunities to share some of the the good things that agriculture is doing when it comes to climate and our role in the environment and, you know, the importance of food. And, and so we, we need to take advantage of sharing some of those good stories and opportunities to, to really share the truth and not just sound bites that have often dictated this, this discussion in the past.
0: Well, yeah, and of course, there were actually more cattle in the field because most of those would have been moving to market. That's a different issue. So that makes it a point. And I always like to remind everybody that we didn't seem to have a problem with green, with methane emissions with 35 million buffalo in the country. But that's a different story for another day. But you're right. I think it does and hopefully will change the dynamic of the conversation. I think some groups shy away from the phrase regenerative agriculture, and that's a different debate for another day. But the other side of it is that we are sequestering carbon. We are keeping stuff out of the atmosphere and we're doing it better every year. And we're working on ways to measure that. I mean, I have a story coming up in Western Farmer Stockman's website uh, next week that covers that very issue. There's an experimental program out in Montana where growers are actually getting compensated over a five-year period of time for their practices, and they're measuring a starting point, and in five years they'll measure an ending point and see what happened. And they don't get penalized if it goes down in five years. It's an experimental program which will help set a baseline for even that type of rangeland carbon sequestration. And trust me, with all the rangeland they've got out in the West, that's huge. There are things we can do out there that can make a huge difference. And I think that'll be a lot of great conversation.
1: Along with that too, I mean, there's been this discussion of being able to monetize the the carbon market for so long and maybe we're finally getting to a point with the technology that we have and being able to finally quantify what farmers are doing and in this environment where every penny matters for farmers being able to generate a a different stream of revenue and something that consumers can relate to and companies are behind I I think there's really a lot of great opportunities there for farmers to to capitalize on on something that that they're they're being asked to do and and hopefully being paid to be that carbon sink that that they are on their farms.
0: That'd be great. But you know what? We're talking about the future. Can we talk about the present again? Step back. You were listening in yesterday when uh, our trade representative Lighthizer was chatting with the Senate about trade. What did we learn about that? And I think there was some good news.
1: Yeah, so yesterday the Senate Finance Committee held a hearing and uh Ro- Robert Lighthizer, the US Trade Representative, Ambassador Lighthizer was the the only witness there. And so they were able to kind of key in on a lot of different things, but for agriculture there were several different members who uh, who questioned him about China's commitment to meet the phase 1 deal. And the bottom line for him was Um, Because we've seen some reports out from even USDA and Farm Bureau that we're not going to meet that phase one deal that went into effect uh, just a couple of months ago. And and his line was, if I was going to bet on it, I would bet that we would make it. He is really positive about being able to meet those targets. We still have a couple of months before it would get to a point where they could take some action. I mean, the whole thing with this China deal was that it's enforceable meaning that if they don't meet their promises, that we have the ability to take enforcement action. So he said, um, you know, one thing with USDA's data and some of the things that other groups like the Farm Bureau have had out is that there's a a delay, right? When China says that they're gonna buy something, it might not get on a ship for six to eight weeks before it's sent over. Um, And so he made the comments that, they are very confident in what is being purchased. I mean, he he called the pork that's going over there astronomical, which obviously China is dealing with their African swine fever, and so they have a, a big shortage in pork. Also, beef, we were not sending over a lot of beef there before Trump came into office. Actually, that was one of the first things that he did not too long after he came into office was to open up the beef market to China and I guess now China is one of the, the second largest market for U.S. beef, um, which actually I hadn't realized that it had climbed up that high until Lighthouser had said that. Um, and so he made the, the point that our, our meat purchases by China are actually three times the level they were in that record year of 2017, which a lot of the the levels that were set in this, this deal are actually 20 percent above the record year we had in 2017. obviously 2018 and 2019 we were in a trade war with china so our numbers were down so that's why that 2017 was that record year that we had with china this deal was supposed to be 20 percent above that record year so he's saying that all things are good but he also said this is a wait and see we need to keep waiting and make sure that they are they are acting how they promised they would act and he is definitely a big enforcement guy so i i have faith that if it doesn't match up to what they promised that they will take action but there was also some clauses in there that allowed for situations such as coronavirus that could maybe give them a little bit of wiggle room but they are still buying stuff we've seen some good reports here in the last couple of weeks so maybe maybe we will get some increased trade with with China that that gives an overall boost to U.S. agriculture, like I know so many people need and want uh, from that phase one deal.
0: Absolutely. Well, as always, Jackie Fatka, policy editor for Farm Futures and Feedstuffs, it's great to talk to you today. Thanks for giving us the update. Uh, Good news on trade, nice uh, background on what's going on with CFAP, and even maybe a future conversation of the farm bill. You take care, and it's great to talk to you, and stay safe.
1: Thanks. You too, Willie. Always good.
0: As you heard, the policy moves and spending decisions in Washington are coming pretty fast, but longer-term questions are also starting to pop up. We thank Jackie for her perspective on these issues. Next, we turn our attention to the dairy industry, where milk dumping and a changing market have given way to USDA support and a spike in prices. Fran O'Leary offers insight into what's happening there, and she shares information she learned on changing consumer trends during the COVID-19 outbreak. Fran, good to catch up with you in Wisconsin. I guess because we're talking Wisconsin, we're talking dairy. And from what I'm seeing, prices look pretty good right now. What's going on with the Class Three milk price? And I really do mean what is going on with the Class Three milk price.
2: Well, it it has been historical and astounding. The end of April, milk prices had plummeted to $10.50. So they were down. They had dropped 50% from the middle of March to the end of April. And now they have rebounded to $21 for June milk, and that is class three milk, and that is just phenomenal. It's kind of also a head scratcher a bit, but it's it's great while it's happening. And July prices are also doing great things. July futures are at $20.60 at the moment, but that's the key phrase, at the moment.
0: <laughs> What's driving this price? I mean, why did it pop up so high?
2: Well, one, the USDA agreed to purchase $317 million worth of dairy products to put in those food boxes for families, and they are going to give those last food boxes out the middle of July. So their last purchases of cheese and dairy products for those boxes will be the last week of June, first week of July, and then that goes away. That's one of the reasons. Another reason the price went up is restaurants are starting to open and they are buying dairy to serve at the restaurants. They're not back at full blast, but they are opening. And that's helped. And exports, while exports aren't as high as they were a year ago, they are helping contribute to our milk prices.
0: I would say as much pizza as I've been eating lately, I think the cheese business would be a little better. But yes, you're right. I mean, from that standpoint. So uh, you mentioned a couple of things. One would be the food box program, which, as you say, is ending Exports are interesting too. You said they're down a little bit. Isn't there a little dark cloud on the horizon too? I mean, Mexico has been a great importer of our dairy products, but their economy's kind of stinking too, isn't it?
2: Right. The peso has gone down in value and they are our number one export country. So there is some concern there. But exports to other parts of the world have gone up and that's helping offset the loss in some exports to Mexico. But the thing that is a big concern, and, and dairy farmers should be watching this in the next 10 days very carefully, is that these high milk prices, $20, $21, are not sustainable after the government stops buying the cheese. And the reason that is, is we have a, a record amount of cheese in in storage and a record amount of butter in storage. So prices could fall very quickly and dairy farmers would be quite wise to start locking these prices in for July, August, through the end of the year. The August class three price is above $18. That's a good price. It's $17 for September and October. And then it's $16 through the end of the year. I've been listening to a lot of dairy economists in the last month, and they've been saying that you should lock in prices and protect those prices because they may go away. We're in very volatile times. And I'm pretty sure almost every dairy farmer knows what goes up can come down.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, what you mentioned, the declining numbers going into August and September, those are what they are today, and we're talking – on uh, June 18th by tomorrow something could happen and that August price could drop to 15. I mean you're right the volatility is kind of off the charts here. One of the interesting things about uh, this time of COVID that gets me is that uh, consumers are a lot closer to their food than they've ever been before and you uh, heard a, a speaker that I've heard before Charlie Arnott talk about the changing consumer dynamic and I'm not sure any of us have ever cooked at home as much for as long in recent history as uh, we did. We're cooking more at home than our grandmothers did, I think. What did you learn from what Charlie was talking about? And what did, you know, as a a farm wife as well, um, what did you take away from that conversation?
2: Well, what I learned was that right before COVID hit, uh, consumption of food away from the home had hit an all-time high of 52%, which astounds me that 52% of our meals on average were being eaten outside the home. And then all of a sudden we kind of whiplashed into eating all of our meals at home. And and that is also an odd thing as well. But I think a lot of us have adjusted and are getting used to it. Some are are venturing out and going to restaurants. Others of us are not.
0: Yeah, well, I suppose if you're comfortable going to a restaurant, we, were, uh, we didn't do 50%, but my wife and I did like to eat out quite a bit. And we are returning to that as the markets open up. But yes, this cooking at home every day and even nationally you see Celebrities, that's one of their complaints. If you're watching some news show, it's like, oh my gosh, I'm cooking at home. And I was with a friend the other day whose wife asked him what he wanted to do to celebrate Father's Day. And he told, told us all what he really wanted to say to her was, go out. I don't want to eat any more of your cooking. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that we're all learning stuff about each other and our food preferences and that. But Charlie, I think, made some interesting comments about the trends, though. We started kind of tr- casually when this started. And then we realized we're going to have to cook at home. And did did he talk about the changing nature of the tastes of what people are eating at home even?
2: Oh, yeah. He he was very um, descriptive about it. He said the first week when everybody found out they were going to have to stay at home and eat at home and cook at home, people were buying very basic things. He said they were buying cold cuts and eating a bologna sandwich and drinking a beer, because that's what they felt comfortable doing the first week. And then that kind of graduated on uh, after that to more comfort foods like chicken and mashed potatoes and uh, lasagna and all the things that just make you feel warm and comfortable. And now he says we have uh, elevated our food cooking to international uh, levels where we're eating tacos and we're making um, these rice bowls with shrimp and other things in it. And we're adding more spices. So we're spicing things up and eating more healthy too.
0: (laughs) That's an interesting story because we call the disease COVID-19. But when you're home for three months, you get the COVID-15, which is the amount of weight you put on with this, when you're sitting at home eating uh, comfort food, so I think yes, after the after a month of lasagna, it was time to go to a rice bowl and a lot more salad. The nice thing is we can get out and work out. That is interesting. Did Charlie think that this would stick? Uh, not so much the cooking at home, but the change diet. Did he really think it would stick that people would stay with it?
2: I I think he mentioned that it will be a long time before we're eating 52% of our meals away from home again, that we will be eating a good majority of our food at home for quite some time. And while there are people who are venturing out and eating some meals away from home, there are other people who are still eating 100% of their meals at home. And when it all averages out, this is a a game changer that people have gotten back to the basics and they're eating at home a lot more than they were just a a very short time ago.
0: Okay. And the change on that, from my perspective, is that it puts them closer to their food. When I go out to a restaurant and eat, somebody else is making it. When I'm at home and I'm making it, I know what I'm buying. I know what's going into it. I care that it's you know, 2% milk, 1% fat-free, or if I'm looking at cheese, is it the two-year-age sharp cheddar, a favorite in our house, or the kinds of products that I'm, on the dairy side that I'm putting into my food, I'm caring more. It'll be very interesting to see how that changes the dairy consumption from the consumer standpoint going forward. I know that fluid milk has been doing pretty well in the grocery store.
2: Right. Fluid milk has, has been shining um, brightly ever since COVID-19 hit. Consumption has skyrocketed. It seems to be a shining star and in most refrigerators of people all across the country. And consumption of cheese is also up through all of this. I think all dairy products have benefited from people eating at home. Of course, consumption overall is down because we ate a lot of dairy products through restaurants and that hasn't come back. Right. But consumption at home has really taken off. And people are doing something that they really had gotten away from doing the last couple years, and that's sitting down to eat a bowl of cereal every morning. They're no longer eating portable food because they have to get to the office. They're sitting down and eating cereal with milk on it in the morning, and that has really helped boost milk consumption as well.
0: I'm more likely to do that for supper, but that's a different story. But <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's fair. I mean, yes, uh, the, the sales numbers for General Mills and Kellogg's have been quite astounding in the last three months. And those companies are trying to figure out how they can continue to capitalize on it. But I think it's great that we as consumers reverted to the things we know and trust, even if they are packaged goods. And it's going to be interesting to see how that changes the dialogue with consumers regarding agriculture in the future. Fran O'Leary, Wisconsin Agriculturist, it's been good to talk to you today and keep up on the dairy industry and the changing tastes of the consumer. You take care and stay Thank safe. Thank
2: you, Willie. You too.
0: Thanks to Jackie Fakka with Feedstuffs and Farm Futures and Fran O'Leary with Wisconsin Agriculturist. We appreciate the coverage you provide for our farmers. Around Farm Progress is our newest podcast looking at agriculture with the help of our national team, but we have other podcasts you'll want to check out. The best way to find them is to visit farmprogress.com forward slash farm hyphen progress hyphen podcasts. Again, farmprogress.com forward slash farm hyphen progress hyphen podcasts. They're worth checking out. And we continue our in-depth coverage of all things regarding COVID-19 at farmprogress.com forward slash coronavirus. You've been listening to Around Farm Progress, our weekly look at agriculture across the United States with editors from the Farm Progress team. Farm Progress is the nation's leading agriculture information source with 17 state and regional magazines, as well as Farm Futures, Beef, National Hog Farmer, and Feedstuffs. And of course, the Farm Progress show on Husker Harvest Days. Join us next week as we continue our agriculture journey around the country. I'm Willie Vogt, Editorial Director at Farm Progress. Thanks for listening.